Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called, by, called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve of their boast. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry away nothing. His glory will not go down after him, for though while he lives he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. This is God's Word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, um, just a stark reminder that we will all die that whether sooner or later, that will be our end. And reminding us that there is nothing in this life, that no, no matter the amount of money that's in our bank account, uh, no matter what kind of, of things that we have, uh, no matter our health, that none of these things matter when those days are approaching. And so God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear from your holy word today that you would speak to us clearly about this topic here. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, so I'm, a, I'm a sucker for uh, anything, any writing or book that has to do with death or dying. And it's like been a recent thing, which makes me kind of nervous, because it's like one of those things where it's like, I'm going to die tomorrow. And somebody's going to say, yeah, he's been reading a lot about death. And it'll be like, in, like my testimony there. Um, and like, God was preparing him for this. But anyways, nonetheless, I've been reading a lot about death and dying. And uh, I came across a, an article in the Boston Globe this week um, that, that has the title, and this is good clickbait for me, I just learned I only have months to live. This is what I want to say. It's a pretty serious article, actually, written by the journalist Jack Thomas. Um, he was recently diagnosed within the past uh, couple of months with inoperable cancer. There's nothing they can do about it. Um, he, has, he has months to live. And so he uses this as an opportunity, being a writer, to write about what his, what his life has been like, uh, what he will miss, and what he hopes will happen to him after death. He's not a Christian. So later, later in the article, he asked this question uh, of himself. Does the, 
does the intensity of a fatal illness clarify anything? And this is his answer. He says, every day I look at my wife's beautiful face more admiringly. And in the garden, I do stare at the long row of blue hydrangeas and with more appreciation than before. And the hundred and hundreds of roses that bloomed this year were, were a greater joy than usual. Not merely in their massive sprays of color, but also in their deep green foliage, the soft petals, the deep colors, and the aromas that remind me of boyhood. So what he's telling us here is that death has a way of sharpening our reality. It it brings to the forefront those things and and relationships um, we experience every day and probably take for granted. And then it gives us a greater thankfulness for them. So our poet is doing this for us today here in our text by using the reality of death Uh, to point out what we believe is probably true conceptually, but something that we've never really thought that deeply about. And so for this particular psalm, death is used as a frame in which to remind us of the futility and foolishness of trusting in your wealth. Now before you say, I'm going to use that word wealth and riches, and I know in your mind you're going to say, I'm not wealthy and I'm not rich. If you're an American you're considered wealthy. You got what you need. You got clothes on your back. You're, you're, not, you're not hurting for food. You drove here. So if you're an American, you're wealthy. So, so keep that in mind. But uh, this is what this psalm is, is addressing here. It's the futility and foolishness of trusting in wealth. And he does that for us in, in three ways. First, by showing us a faithful wisdom... Second, by showing us a foolish confidence. And then third, by showing us a freeing ransom. So a faithful wisdom, a foolish confidence, and a freeing ransom. So first, a faithful wisdom. There in verses 1-4, through four, look there with me. He writes, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. So in these first four verses, we find our psalmist building his words on a foundation of wisdom. Almost like, almost like a proverb that we find in the book of Proverbs. Uh, that he's, he's building the foundation of what he's about to say in wisdom. He's saying this is wisdom. And everyone, doesn't matter what, where you're at in life, everyone needs wisdom. To listen to this. So where do you tend to gather wisdom? I think if you were, if you were honest, I think most of us would, would say, uh, my wisdom typically comes from either myself, so I trust in myself to answer the questions right and, and to make these decisions in the right way, and so I only, I only refer to myself and my experience, or you, you, you're, you trust in that, that person who's closest to you, so that might be uh, your spouse, or it might be a good friend, uh, or whoever. We usually don't venture out much further than those from ourselves and possibly the person who lives with us. Which is a danger, isn't it? And if you didn't know that was a danger, I'm telling you, it's a danger. The Proverbs do tell us that it is better, it is better to have many counselors when trying to make a decision. 
So to not open yourself up before others who are in your life, to not seek wisdom from, from someone who may know your situation better than you because uh, they may have walked through the same situation before you. And then you have this person here who has walked through a similar situation and God has taught them and brought to them wisdom in the particular situation that you might be in. So you have places like in 2 Corinthians 1 that reminds us of this, where Paul says um, to the Corinthian church, God comforts us, comforts us in our affliction so that, this is why God comforts you in your affliction, so that we may be, ab- be able to comfort others in their affliction. But I recognize that it's sometimes hard to listen to other humans whom you know to be flawed and broken. So then, there's this even greater danger of not going to God's Word for wisdom. Sometimes when I've, when I've sit down with counseling people and asking them, they're, they're wrestling with something, and, and they, they haven't gone to God's Word yet. They haven't even opened it up to see if God actually speaks to their particular situation. So that's the even greater danger because you think, you think it irrelevant. You think God's word is, is probably irrelevant to whatever it is you are struggling with or wrestling through. And so you avoid it. Because sometimes the wisdom that you glean is what we saw last week in Psalm 46. So you're crying out to God. You're asking for wisdom. And then God speaks to you from his word and says, uh, Be still. And know that I am God. That's not really helpful sometimes to us, we think. But God is saying there, essentially, put down whatever it is that is hindering your relationship with me. Surrender your weapons. And be still. And here in verses 1 through 4, this is exactly the kind of wisdom that you are getting from our poet. He wants you to hear the wisdom that comes not from the mouth of men, but from communion with God. And he's no respecter of person either. He's, he is, he, in verses 1 through 2, he calls on every person, every person regardless of social or economic status, to listen to him, to listen to this wisdom. He says, all peoples, all inhabitants, All classes, low class and high class, uh, rich people and poor people together, hear these words, which means every one of us is in danger of what he is about to say. You might be very wealthy. You might have a lot of money in the bank and you will never run out of money. Or you may have very little in your bank bank account. All all of of us are in danger of what the, the psalmist is going to tell us here. So he says, listen to these words. And you can tell the poet is giving wisdom here by the accumulation of wisdom categories there in verse 4. Look at at those there. He says, My mouth shall speak wisdom. And then he talks about meditation. He talks about uh, understanding. You will receive understanding. He actually uses the word proverb. And then he talks about solving this riddle. So all of these words show that the wisdom that we are receiving is from that of a sage. Someone who who has walked this road ahead of us and he has something to teach us. And that something is this. 
Wisdom concerning the emptiness of riches. Now I would say that most of us, if not all of us, struggle at some level with materialism. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce defined materialism as this, which I think is really helpful. He says, thinking in terms of the things we see rather than the spiritual realities we cannot see. And being inclined to trust wealth or what we can accomplish with it and what I, and I add, or get with it. Because sometimes we live for that next Amazon purchase coming to our door. But then there's this other point behind the main point that we cannot miss that I alluded to in, in the introduction here. Because the psalmist wants us to know the emptiness of riches... Not, so he's, not, not to make you feel guilty about having money or having stuff or anything like that. He wants us to know the emptiness of riches so that we can understand the fullness of God. So to perceive God's will for human life, and, and, and that's where the, the language of death comes into play uh, in this song. Because death is the great equalizer. Death levels all of us. And because it's the great equalizer, it's foolishness to put our confidence in anything that can't do anything for us in our death. Especially, the psalmist is communicating, our riches. Because our wealth can do nothing when that time comes. Um, the French atheist Voltaire, was a, he was a very rich man. He was also a a uh, committed enemy of Christianity. Um, and it's reported that on his deathbed that he cried to his doctor. I mean, he's, he's, he's on his way out and he cried these words to his doctor. He said, I will give you half of all I possess if you will give me six months more of life. Now obviously, Voltaire is no longer with us. He's been dead for many, many years. Obviously, his wealth could do no sort of thing, and he died in this sort of desperation. That riches have provided everything that I've ever needed, health and things and friends and people around me, but when he needed him most, or when he needed God most, this God that he raged against his entire life, he was not there to help him. So instead, he chose to have what we'll look at next in verses 5 through 13, a, a foolish confidence in his riches. Look at those verses with me as I read them again. Our poet says, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve of their boast. So fundamentally, Psalm 49 is known as a wisdom psalm about specifically the emptiness of riches. 
And so within verses 5 through 13, we see how foolish it is for one to put their hope, trust, and confidence in them. Twice in this psalm, uh, the psalmist tells us that if you put your uh, hope and trust in your riches, that you are no better than an animal, than a beast at the end of your days. And so these people have put their hope, trust, and confidence so much so that it's all that they think about. Making money and how to spend money may be the posture that you currently have. It may be uh, who you are at this particular moment in your life. So just like the the rich fool in Luke 12 that that Joe read for us earlier, uh, do you find yourself saying, maybe in your own words, Words that are similar to what the fool said. He says, And I will say to my soul, talking to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Are you saying those words to yourself or thinking those words to yourself ever? Because if you are, you're probably, probably drifting into a mindset that believes riches can somehow fulfill you in ways that are only reserved for God. And so just to kind of push this to the outer limits, so worst case belief, is that your riches, you, you begin to believe that your riches could somehow save a person from death, which is the ultimate height of folly, our psalmist says. Look at verses 7 through 9. He says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. So the psalmist here is describing a man who truly believes in the power of his riches above everything else. So much so that he believes it could actually save someone from the grave. That it could actually make someone live forever. Is what he believes. Now before you start thinking that there is no one in the world who actually believes that. You think, well this is a psalmist. He's writing a, he's writing a poem. And so sometimes poets like to exaggerate to make a point. Before you kind of get to that get to that level. Let me introduce you to a group of people known as the extreme life extensionist they made that word up because spellcheck did not like that word extensionist and this is their battle cry on their website it says this quote the deathist paradigm has to go so if you believe that one day you will die they label you a deathist okay so you're a deathist the deathist paradigm has to go it's time to look beyond the past of dying to a future of unlimited living truly believe that they can live forever, or at least find a way to do so. And so I read this in, the, in an article from, this is from 2019 in the Guardian newspaper, um, who reported on this group of mostly, surprise, surprise, uh, venture capitalists and Silicon Valley billionaires. Quote, who consider death undesirable and appear to have made so much money, they require infinite life in which to spend it. 
And you could take this also to say, so they invest a lot of money not only to save themselves, but they're also uh, buying infinite life for others to come. So if you, are, if you are, they say, if you are under the age of 75, which is most of us in the room, uh, you, you have the potential to live forever. That's what they say. We will buy life. Truly, this is a very real and very foolish confidence. Now, some scholars have pointed out that it would make more sense, and even, and even went so far as to change the language of verse 7, even though the, the Hebrew didn't um, put it like this, to speak of someone redeeming their own life with money uh, instead of redeeming another person's life. So much like uh, Voltaire tried to do is redeeming his own life with money, uh, some translators tried to say, well, this would make way more sense if it was uh, someone trying to redeem their own life and to save their own life. And so it, it would read instead... Truly, a man cannot ransom his own life, instead of truly, a man cannot ransom the life of another. Now, the poet does this on purpose. So, if you have a, if you have a translation that, that makes it uh, truly, a man cannot ransom his own life, that's not a good translation of that verse. I'm not saying your Bible is not a good translation. I'm just saying that's not a good translation of the verse. Um, but Because the poet is doing something here very strategically for us, for his readers. He's creating this parallel in the psalm to to later show that man, of course, man cannot redeem the life of another, but there is someone who can, and that is God. God can and does redeem our lives. So I want want you to hold on to that, because we'll come back to that later in our final point. Uh, and so one other thing I wanted to bring up uh, is, is, is what our poet is not saying here. What he is not saying is that it's a sin to even think about money. Because we do have an obligation to, to manage our money well and to, and to manage it in such a way that, we, that, that, our, that our needs and those of our family are met. Okay, That is a, that is a, biblical, that is a biblical idea. So it goes so far as that the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 5.8 that if one does not do this, they do not provide for themselves and provide for their family members, uh, Paul says they have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. Very serious language around that. So to say that it's a sin to even think about money or to, or to invest time into that and, uh, is to put all of us in a precarious position. Since most of us spend most of our waking hours working jobs to make money. And I know some of you work jobs that actually invest money. So you're constantly thinking about money. So, so I just want to alleviate some of that guilt for you right there. But also to bring this back to say, but, but the danger here, because there is a danger. The danger is when we transition from the understanding that everything we have is from God and belongs to Him ultimately, to trusting in and even boasting in our wealth. So it's a, it's, it's a thin line that we have to, to walk sometimes. A dangerous line. Verse 6 tells us that this is who is being addressed here, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. So how can you avoid this? 
a few ways. I'm sure there's lots of other ways, but I'll give you three. One is by acknowledging that it's God who owns everything that you possess. Everything. Uh, Don Whitney, he was actually one of my seminary professors, but he wrote a book on the spiritual disciplines, and he wrote this. He says, on the discipline of of, uh, stewardship, he was writing. He says, we don't own anything. God owns everything, and we are his managers. For most of us, the house we now call my house was called my house by someone else a few years ago. And a few years from now, someone else will call that house my house. Do you own land? A few years from now, someone else will be calling it my land. Haggai 2.8 says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And you can insert whatever it is that you own in that verse. It still applies. It all belongs to God. Second is by seeing your giving for what it is. Seeing your giving for what it is. So the giving, I'm talking about very practically the giving that you give to this local church. And, and, and most of you do, and we're really thankful for that. But seeing your giving for what it is, which is an act of worship. Your giving is an act of worship. It is not, it is not an administrative transaction. It is an act of worship which is in direct correlation to your acknowledgement of God as owner of everything. So if you can see that God is the owner of everything, you really won't have a problem being a joyful, sacrificial giver. Don Whitney again. Giving is much more than a duty or an obligation. It is an act of worshiping the Lord. I've had a couple of people send me memes. People love to send me memes, I think, sometimes to to like get me going sometimes. Um, but these memes, I've actually been reflecting on them as I've been reading this particular application of, of a meme uh, that someone sent me of people uh, dancing during the worship service. I mean, I'm not talking just like, you know, just like a, like a slow dance. I'm talking about like backflips kind of dancing. <laughs> and I noticed one thing was that during, during the, 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 these videos that I was sent, at every instance... I noticed that they were standing in the front of the church, and we don't, we don't do it like this at Christ the King. We can start, if somebody wants to start a petition of this, but they were giving their tithes and offerings. And the music was playing, and people were just getting down and throwing their checks in the basket. I'm just saying. <laughs> they are worshiping the Lord in their giving. Okay, third. Third thing is by understanding the reality of your own death and its relation to your wealth. There's a connection there the psalmist is bringing. So allowing your own death to sharpen your reality. And then understanding that nothing is coming with you. Nothing. We see this in verses 10 through 13. Death is inevitable. The wise, the fool, the stupid alike will leave their wealth to others. So Jesus makes this point in his parable in Luke 12. uh, After the man has exclaimed to himself, relax, eat, drink, be merry. So he's saying, relax, look, you have everything you need. You have everything you need and then some. You You could live a thousand lifetimes and you would never run out of money. 
just relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. And this is what God says of this man. He says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, this wealth that you have built up and saved up, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Verse 13 of our psalm sums this up plainly when he says, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Foolish confidence in their wealth. Foolish confidence in the things that they have acquired. But thanks be to God... You don't have to be left in your foolishness if that's where you find yourself because it's, it's God, not your riches, who provides a freeing ransom that we see in verses 14 through 20. So it's here in these final verses of our psalm um, we find this great contrast. So this is where we can go back to, to what I told you to hold on to earlier from verse 7. So in verse 7, the psalmist tells us, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. So to reiterate, you can't redeem yourself from death, and you cannot redeem anyone else from death with your riches. So the point of this parallel is to show you that God alone is the one who redeems. God alone is the one who brings the ransom. Verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, from the power of death, for He will receive me. So herein, in that, in that, that one verse, herein lies the poet's hope, and also our hope. Not riches. Not another person's riches but God alone. And his hope doesn't simply lie, uh, lie in, in having a long life. That's not what he's hoping for. He's not hoping um, for, for a long life or even to make a lot of money. He's not asking for that. He, he, he even acknowledges, we see that the wicked rich may live a long life. That's, that's part of the riddle that he talked about earlier, is why do the rich, why do the wicked rich live longer than some of the righteous part of the riddle that he never really works out here but but the wicked wicked rich live a long life but that means nothing it has nothing to do with their social status it has nothing to do with their with their morality at all and so in verses 17 through 20 our psalmist communicates the reality that while the rich may live a long life they will take nothing with them when they die look at verses 17 uh, through 20 he writes, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him either. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perishes. So our poet's hope it's not in long life. It's not in earthly riches. Our poet's hope, rather, is life forever with God. He understands what the sage says later in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4, 
Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. But righteousness, righteousness delivers from death. So this term ransom, or it might say in your Bible, to uh, uh, redeem, both of these words are commercial terms, kind of business transaction terms that mean to buy or buy out or buy. You see it throughout, throughout the Bible. But spiritually, spiritually this term refers to God buying you out of your slavery to sin. Because all of you owe God, because of your sin, a death. You owe Him that. You are indebted. You are in debt to Him. You owe Him a death. But it's God who frees you. It's God who ransoms your life. It's God who pays this ransom with a death. And it's not your death. It's the death of His only Son. This is what 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says, that I think sums up Psalm 49 for us. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The question I have to leave you with today is this. And I ask this question, I'm going to close in prayer. So This is the question that I want you to meditate on today, the rest of this week, however you, you want to do that. But the question is this. Because death is coming to every one of us. It may be sooner, it may be later. You may, you may, you may enter into that category where you, you live until you're 150, whatever. You're still going to die. So, And I think those... Years in the hundreds are going to be miserable, so I'm just I'm letting you know. Um, so the question I want to leave with you is this. Do you trust Jesus as your Redeemer, who the, the Heidelberg Catechism says is our only hope in life and in death? Do you trust Jesus as your Redeemer, or are you trusting your wealth to save you? Let's pray. Father, I pray that each one of us trusts Jesus as our Redeemer. I pray that, that for, those, uh, for those in this room who may be struggling with trusting in their wealth, that they would see how empty it is, how foolish it is, uh, how it can never help them uh, at, at that time when you, when, when you will call them to death. And so God, I pray that our eyes would be open. Help us to meditate on that question um, and to understand that today is the day of salvation, that we would repent and believe the gospel. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.